Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to another episode of Cleaning Up the Mental Mess a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life. In this episode, I interview renowned child psychologist, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson on all things children, parenting and mental health. Tina shares some great tips on how to help anxious children, key strategies for healthy brain development, how to correctly navigate tantrums, how to cultivate mentally resilient children and more. Tina also shares some great tips on parenting during this pandemic and some of her biggest challenges she has faced as a parent. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and keep sharing about it on social media. I love seeing what you guys found helpful. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Tina Bryson. I'm so excited that you could join me today to talk about this extremely important topic that I know a lot of my moms and dads are going to be very pleased to hear about. And that's how to manage kids and how to manage tantrums and how to be a parent and practical strategies. And you've written some amazing books and welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I love getting to talk about all of this because it is so much what we live every day. And I think as parents, we can be so hard on ourselves wondering, is what I'm doing working? Is it causing harm? Is it helping? Is it ever going to get better? These are the questions that are always running through our heads. And I think it can be so helpful if we have some guiding principles and some ways to really be intentional and knowing some of the science behind the why for why we might approach behavior in a particular way. So I can't wait to dig into it with you. Oh, no, I'm thrilled because my audience loves science. They know me. I'm always talking science and giving them the reasons this is happening in your brain when you do this with your mind. And so they, they, they love this. They prime for that. So just before we Great. dive in, tell us a little bit more about your background. I mean, tell us something that's not in your bio as well as what's in your <laughs> You know, one thing that's, well, so my boys are now 13, 17, and 20. So I'm sort of, I've got three teenage boys in the house. And you know, it's funny. It's very much like the newborn feeding schedule. Like every three hours, that's they want to eat again. This is like newborn. That's hilarious. You know? Oh <laughs> my gosh. Lot, it's, it's a lot of food. A lot I hope, more than I hope just you've taught nursing. them to cook for themselves. I hope that they, they can are, yes. make... <laughs> 
<laughs> they are great cooks. And particularly now when we're all at home a lot more, we're, we're sort of divvying it up a little bit. But they do love to cook. But one thing that's really something that a lot of people might know is I never planned to be an author or a speaker. And this was never my plan. But when I was working on a PhD in social work and studying child-rearing theory and attachment science, and my plan was to be a professor and to research and teach on the college level, I came across interpersonal neurobiology. I, I, I heard Dan speak and it changed the whole trajectory of my life because I had always been, I'm, I'm sort of geeky like you. I love the science and I had always been a really frustrated grad student because I always wanted to know the mechanism for why, you know, they would say, well, you know, this particular intervention works best for this particular population. I would say, but why, what is the mechanism of change? Why doesn't that work on other things or why, you know, and when I heard Dan teach about the science of interpersonal neurobiology, particularly dynamic systems theory or complexity theory, where differentiated parts that are also linked. And when we think about that in the brain and in our relationships, how, when that happens, we're better off. And so I started thinking about that and applying it to parenting and how do I promote that integration in my kids' brains from the beginning. And at the time, it was a really exciting time in neuroscience where we were seeing how often repeated experiences really do change the architecture of the brain and that relational experiences were far more powerful than we ever knew. And so as I started digging into this science and applying it in my life and sharing it with other parents, I just had to keep doing more. So I went to Dan and I said, hey, I just taught my four-year-old about the brain and he's now using it to help himself understand and explain to me, like, I would say, sweetie, why did you just hit your brother? And he would say, mama, I flipped my lid. And, you know, he, and I said, we've got to share this with parents. And so this all happened in a very organic way by me just chasing the, the passion that the science was giving me and how I feel just so grateful that I get to take some of the science like you do and share it with people in ways that are applicable and how relationships and the mind change the the brain and how we have tr- we have a lot more power to change our lives than we ever thought we did and so that's exciting i love it are we speaking the <laughs> same language i'm so pleased that you started off with that because that's really where my passion is as well so we talk in the same language i did Good. some of the first neuroplasticity research way back in the 80s showing people with traumatic brain injuries yep. when you change your mind you can change your brain you can change your behavior and then with learning disabilities and traumas and working in various different environments and still do clinical trials i'm still i'm just busy just busy analyzing my most recent set of clinical trials and honestly tina it's true we can change our brain when you use your mind correctly you can direct the trajectory of your life in a different direction you know and it takes a lot of work and it is it's fantastic (laughs) to know so now let's let's start with the big picture and then we can sort of silo into the more specifics what are some of the general major trends that you find our parents come to you with or that because i know you give a lot of talks and you get a lot of advice and so let's start with some of the big stuff then maybe we can zone into some of the more specific stuff in your books i think i'll start with this i think one of the biggest mistakes we make as parents is we focus so much on the behavior behavior of the child and not on the mind behind the behavior. Oh, I love that and, statement. Yeah, that is like the 
Bess, I've never heard anyone say that except myself. Mind behind the behavior. Yes. Thank you, Tina. Yes. And I think, you know, I started an interdisciplinary clinical practice about five years ago with occupational therapists and neuropsychologists and speech and language pathologists, educational therapists, and mental health across the lifespan. And we truly work in a team model because that idea of chasing the why, I, I really find in mental health there's such a, again, I feel a little bit like I'm on, I'm a little bit of a black sheep again, even before I found interpersonal neurobiology back to like, oh, gosh, I kind of feel alone in my perspective, but now I know you, you can join with me. But I think we spend, even in mental health, we're so focused on extinguishing behavior that we're missing the, the whole person and, and the whole person. Right. And it's, it's silly really when we think about it, because it's very much like if I come to you and you're my physician and I'm coughing and you give me cough syrup, but I'm just going to keep coughing and coughing and coughing. And if you don't ever investigate, does she have pneumonia or does she have allergies? We would have a really different intervention path to stop what's happening if we treat it correctly. And so I think our culture, and one of the main things that I think parents come to me is they're so focused on changing their child's behavior, that they're really missing what's behind the behavior and what's really we have to really peel the layers back. So that's, that's a big issue that, that comes and we can talk a lot about that, especially as it relates to how we discipline. No, that's brilliant. And I'd love to because that's something you, you mentioned, how you work in a team and how that's disappeared. You know, I was practicing, sort of practicing nearly 35 years ago. And I, I don't practice anymore. I did for 25 years. But there was, in the beginning, that's what we had. We, we would yeah. work in interdisciplinary clinics. So we would never treat a person without the whole team, the speech yeah. pathologist, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the everyone was the teacher, yeah. the parents. And I watched that change. And I say this so many, to so many people that I interview and talk to, I watched the change as my career progressed and, it, and I was doing research at the same time. And it concerned me how it went from let's work on the whole person as an individual case study with their narrative, their story, what's going on, what's the why, what's happening, how can we teach mind management, etc. I saw just, uh, okay, that's just a label, a behavior. Let's, so let's tick off yes. the check, check the boxes, give a label, pop a medication, boom, done. And then wonder why it's not working. And you haven't right. addressed you haven't addressed anything. So that's oh. I love what you're saying. So that we've got to go back well, to that now. I, we have to reintroduce yeah. that approach again. We do. And that's why I started the Center for Connection because so many, we were seeing these really complex kids who I felt were further traumatized by being in schools and in other intervention programs where they were actually being punished for things they couldn't help and no one was really getting to the root. And so I think that's just a big thing. We'll definitely need to come back to that. But I think, you know, another really common theme, so related to that is that parents really want to know, like, how do I discipline my kids in more effective ways? Mm, That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, parents feel like I've tried everything and I can't get my kid to do what they're supposed to do. Um, And it, you know, that'll all be part of the same conversation, which is we really have to get to the why behind, you know, what's happening. I, another really, really common big theme is parents who never feel like they're on the same page. Parents who, you know, and really, truly, it's rare to find a couple, co-parents, whether they're married or not, who are really, really on the same page. And really, you don't even have to be in the same page as long as you're kind of in the same book. But I have a lot of parents. I'm so glad you brought that up. No one's really, and I've interviewed quite a few child psychologists and no one's brought that up. That's the first time. So I'm very excited you addressed that. 
Yeah. And it's funny because I actually, as a clinician, I actually really do not enjoy couples work. That was definitely something I knew early on that that was not, I really liked working with kids and, and young adults, but I hated doing couples work. I just didn't, the, the conflict was too impactful for my nervous system for me to feel like it, I liked it. But because I do a lot of parenting work, I ended up having to kind of do a lot of that. And I I rarely see a couple that has a really intentional and similar philosophy. I rarely see parents who have any kind of intentional philosophy. They typically approach behavior and discipline as the fly by the seat of the pants method, which is like whatever they think of in the moment or is what they're going to do. And and so, you know, I think it's really important that that we focus on helping parents get on the same at least basic approach. It's good for kids to have parents do things differently because then kids learn different people do things different ways. It's great prefrontal exercise for them to have to think about what's going to be effective with one parent versus the other. But what's important is that when parents have a lot of conflict in a way that's handled not respectfully, it actually can really undermine children's happiness. But here's the bigger issue I see. Typically, you have one parent who thinks the other parent is too strict and one parent who thinks the other parent's too lenient. So what happens is they continue to parent in response to the other one. So like, because my other parent is so strict, I'm going to be more lenient or vice versa. But what happens then is then they start parenting in reaction to each other and they're not responding to the child at all. So the child's completely left out of it. So that's why that's really important. How do you handle that? Okay, so while you're on that topic, because I know these yeah. people going, yes, 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 that's happening. Yes. How do we, what do we do, Dina? Yes. <laughs> yes, well, the first thing is to say, you don't have to be exactly on the same page. It's really, like I said, it's really good for kids to have different ways of approaching things. And the other thing I would say is, once you kind of say, here's how we're going to handle things in our family. Here's how we're going to do things. Like, what is our discipline philosophy? And we can talk about that. If you kind of get on the same page or at least book in terms of what you're going for, what is it we want for our kids to become? What is, and that doesn't even have to be hard. Like, I want my kid to be self-disciplined. How am I going to, or I want my kid to be responsible and think about other people instead of being selfish. How do I build that skill? So we can really help them do that. And then the third thing I would say is the areas where parents are the most far apart from each other often have to do with two things in my experience. One is their own stuff from their childhood that they haven't yet worked through. So they may be either just repeating patterns that were passed down to them automatically or automatically saying, I'm doing things differently from my parents. But it's not that they have really reflected on their past, made sense of it, and looked at how it impacts their parenting. So you might have someone who says, well, when I was, I had a client one time who said, you know, my kid is spoiled. Our whole family is held captive to his tantrums all the time and I'm sick of it. And he just needs stricter discipline. And his wife's like, yeah, but you're too hard on him. And he says, well, I think kids just shouldn't be listened to that much. I just think parents have to be in charge and he should be seen and not heard. And all of that had a lot to do with his own background and not really about his child's need. In fact, this child was a kid who had a lot of sensory sensitivities and the world overwhelmed him. So he had a lot of threat responses and a lot of tantrums beyond what we would expect. And he needed some different kind of intervention. But that had to do with his past and his history that he hadn't yet really thought through. And the second thing is 
that a lot of times when we're on different pages, there's some fear behind it. So I'll just give a personal example. So when our, we have told our boys that whatever money they've saved towards a car, that we would match that money. And so we wanted to encourage them to save. We weren't going to just buy them vehicles. We wanted them to be invested in the process. So we said, whatever you save, we will match that money. And then you'll have that to spend towards a vehicle or investments or whatever you want to do instead. So when it came time for our oldest to purchase a car for him, he had saved, I can't remember how much. And so to match that wasn't going to be enough to get him a vehicle that I felt was going to be safe enough. So I wanted to spend a lot more money to get him a car that had more more updated safety kinds of things. And my husband and I, yeah, my husband and I were just in so much conflict. And he was like, but we're not going to teach him what we said we're going to teach him. If we just give him a bunch of extra money, that's not what we were trying to teach him. And I was like, yeah, but it's his birthday and I really want him to be safe. And, And my husband had this moment of brilliance where he was like, you know, what is that wanting to spend extra money? What's that really about for you? And then when I could really get clear that it really was, I was afraid about him driving. And I felt like, you know, it was my firstborn. And when I really was like, gosh, I'm, I'm afraid about him driving. And I feel like if he has extra safety things, that makes me feel safe. Can we just give him a him bicycle driving. rather? Exactly. <laughs> Can we just drive him around forever? Yeah, ourselves? yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> So then when I could really get clear on that and he was like, yeah, I can see why that would be a, you know, frightening for you. We could really get to, again, it's about that kind of peeling the layers back and getting to what it's really about. So I think when parents are on opposite pages on a lot of things, it's that there may be some fears that, or some other things that they haven't gotten to. And we really just need to listen to each other. And again, look at the mind behind the conversation. Oh, I love it. So it's just so in line with everything that my listeners here on this podcast, you've got to get the mind behind the situation. So instead of fighting over that, it may, there may be a little bit initially arguments or so, but to get yeah. to the point where you actually have a communication, sit down and you work out the why behind so that you can then resolve the issue together. Otherwise, you confuse the child and you confuse yourself and it just becomes this whole negative cycle, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And then the last thing I would say that's a huge theme is parents who pathologize anytime their child has a negative emotion. <laughs> oh wow, you this is so, that's so good. I'm so glad you deep, said this that. This is deep stuff. No, but that's but very have, important stuff. Yeah. And they, you know, if their kid gets a bad grade or their kid is feeling anxious about something, you know, we get these calls and they're like, I think there's my kid has I think my kid has an anxiety disorder, but when you find out that actually, in fact, maybe the child has a learning challenge or not even a, a learning disability, but they're, they have a discrepancy between, say, like their processing speed or their working memory and their verbal comprehension or their perceptual reasoning. And there's that gap there. Or the demands of the situation are not even developmentally appropriate. And so for the child to feel anxiety is appropriate. And it's not necessarily pathology. And I think in our society, kids really have what, we, what I would call like an adversity gap. So either kids have way too much adversity and they have high, what we, you know, the ACEs studies, they have way too many adverse childhood experiences and too much trauma and they deal with just feeling safe in their everyday lives. So there's definitely that group of kids. And then I think we have another whole group of kids who don't have anywhere near enough challenges in their lives. And their parents 
hyper-protect. And the thing is that the way we learn to be resilient is by getting practice dealing with difficult things. So just like we lift, lift weights to build muscles, we need lots of reps. Kids need lots of reps feeling disappointed and angry and, and sad and left out and not getting things their way. And the parent, as parents, when we protect our children from that and we do everything for them, first of all, they don't learn how to deal with those kinds of things. And so they actually become fragile. So when things like that happen, they don't know how to handle it because they have not done that practice. They fall apart and we're seeing this play out a lot right now. And the second thing is, is when we do everything for our children and we protect them from everything, or if they get upset and we give in to them, we communicate to our kids, I don't trust that you can handle this. You need me to do things for you. And so we really actually, without meaning to, because we do those things because we don't want our children to suffer, it comes from a good place, but we actually undermine our child's view of themselves. And this is, as our kids develop over time, we have to constantly rewrite our map of what they're capable of. And my husband has to remind me all the time because I forget. And he's like, my husband will say, hey, he can do that himself. And I'm like, oh, you're right. You know, and it feels good to care for them and it feels good to do things for them or sometimes not. Sometimes we feel resentful for all those things that they should be doing, but we're not giving them the opportunities to do it and do it messily and make mistakes so that they can learn. And so I think that's another big thing is giving parents permission to allow their children to feel and work through difficult things and just really show up for them in ways where you can your kids, what our kids need from us is not to take away hard things, but to walk with them through it. That's the thing. That's the big difference. But the parenting style is very much, it's in this current modern era, it has become very much one of protect helicopter parenting and, you know, put put them in a bubble and protect from the world. And and it's all coming from love. It's coming from a place, from the right place. But at the end of the day, as you say, you have to, they have to build the resilience to be able to deal with the hard knocks. That's right. It doesn't serve them well to not have practice dealing with difficult things. And I think, too, the other piece of that is as parents, I think we have to get comfortable with our own internal messiness. We have to get comfortable with our own feelings of sadness or anger or disappointment or worries about our kids. We have to be comfortable with sitting in that so that we can get comfortable with our kids being unhappy and disappointed and all of that. And I think we can teach, and this is something okay, we you talked said, about in the- I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you just said something very oh. important. Oh, you just good. said there, we, <laughs> yeah, I'm good. You said so you don't even know how much good stuff you're saying. Okay, so you said there that we parents need to get comfortable not being able to fix everything for the child. I can't remember yeah. your exact words. Getting comfortable, almost feeling guilty about not doing everything because you shouldn't be doing yeah. everything. So we this desire that we have to fix everything. I mean, I've been guilty of that with four kids. It's uncomfortable not finding a solution for them or not being able to remove the pain or remove the, you know, the, the, the friendship breakup or whatever it is that they're going through or the physical pain or whatever it may be. But to be, we've got to be comfortable seeing them battle through, but knowing they'd be walking alongside them. You said something along those lines. And that's something I don't think that we, it's almost like as parents, we need to face that. We need to be aware of that. There needs to be parent training to help parents to deal with that. 
Yeah, because let's say your kid gets really disappointed about something. I mean, I remember one time one of my boys, my youngest, he didn't get to stay up as late as the older boys who had friends over. And he didn't, he wanted to stay up later. And so I said, okay, you can have 15 more minutes. And I'm really militant about bedtime because I think chronic sleep deprivation is a huge source of dysregulation for our whole society. So that's one thing I'm really strict about in my home is about sleep but not necessarily for myself, but for my kids. I'm getting better at the other though. But, you know, so I let him say, stay at 15 more minutes. And what happened was he was 15 more minutes more tired and less able to handle the disappointment that was inevitably coming, right? So when I took him up and he was just saying, it's so not fair. And he was kicking his legs, you know, it's not fair. And for me in that moment to say, this is how he feels, feelings come and go. It's good for him to feel disappointed. That's good practice for him. And the only thing I have to do is to show up in that moment and be present. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to punish him for, you know, now, like typically what we might feel inclined to say is, well, I gave you 15 extra minutes. And if you're going to complain about that, then next time you're not getting any extra time. And, you know, that would be a typical response. And that it might come typically, you know, that might be my first instinct. But it's, it's really kind of, silly when we think about it because it's not like he says, oh, okay, good. Well, now I know that I'm going to change my behavior next time. It just doesn't really work that way. So in that moment, I can, it just doesn't work that way. So what I can say in the moment is it's okay for him to be disappointed. I don't have to fix anything or do anything. All I have to do is be present with him and, and give him the support he needs to feel that feeling and move through it. So that's actually pretty simple. That's brilliant. Yeah. And, and I, can, I can just feel the size of relief from our audience, even though I'm oh. not, it's like, oh, okay, I can actually let them feel disappointment. Yeah. I can let them, I can let them be frustrated. I can just be there for them. Show yes, up with them. You don't have to fix it or discipline or teach nope. them a lesson in that moment. Nope. And you can teach the lesson later. I mean, not in the moment because when they're reactive, they can't learn anyway. But in that moment, I can just say, and here's how, what that would look like. I could just say, you're so disappointed. You feel like you're missing out and it's not fair. The big boys get to stay up. And as I say that, he actually cries harder and kicks his legs more. And he's, he's you know, I'm, I'm doing a strategy in the whole brain child called name it to tame it or connect and redirect. Both of those are strategies at play here, but I can really just say it's hard to feel disappointed. I know that's such an uncomfortable feeling. I'm right here with you while you feel it. And I just say that I just say I'm right. And, or let's say he's mad at me. Maybe he's like, you're so, you know, you're so unfair. You're, you love my brother more than me. And I just, I hate you. Maybe they, they, maybe they lash out at me and I can say, again, I don't have to fix it. I'm definitely going to at some point address the behavior of the way he's speaking to me, but not in that moment. In that moment, I'm going to say, you're so, you're so mad at me. It's okay to feel mad. I'm, I will listen. I'm right here with you. So I think if we can just tell ourselves that can always be our response is to really just show up in the moment, allow our kids to feel. And when they come to you and say, like, I remember my teenager came to me recently and he was like, I'm just so mad and I just feel restless and I don't even know why. And I say, how great that your nervous system and your brain is telling you something's not working for you. So just pay attention to those feelings and see, ask yourself the question, is there something I need right now? Is there something I need to change? What do I need? And to really just celebrate feelings when kids are anxious to say, that's great. Your, your brain and your nervous system are telling you that something's worth paying attention to here. It's normal to feel disappointed, angry, sad, anxious. Those are healthy human emotions. And in our society, we do so much to distract people or fix them 
And that's, that creates fragility. So again, just sitting in that and just knowing emotions come and go and they may feel really horrible for a minute and then they start to pass and to just be present to them. Feeling stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, you're not alone. In fact, everyone struggles with some level of mental distress. Personally, I struggle with anxiety due to work and family demands. Running a business and being a mom of four is hard work. So, in addition to using and practicing good mental hygiene and my mind management techniques, I was searching for additional help. Then I discovered Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. Their products can naturally help reduce stress, anxiety and pain when coupled with good mind management. It's easy to use, just place a few drops under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. If you're new to CBD and a little worried or hesitant, Feels offers free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience. Feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, hangover or addiction. Feels has me feeling my best every day and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash drleaf and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash drleaf to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash drleaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. One of the things that I write about a lot and I do research on is the concept of embrace, process and reconceptualize. And that, that's just what you're basically saying. And as adults, we not even adults know how to do it. But if you've taught your child how to do it, you can grow into adulthood with it. And as, and you said something else that I because I was going to was one of my questions and we can maybe dive into that a little bit is the way that currently how the, med, the current mental health system has blurred lines between a child who's maybe got issues with learning or needs to see a speech therapist or Versus like suddenly they've got a neuropsychiatric brain disease, you know, the whole biomedical reductionistic model, which is so quick to label a child and put them in a box and put them onto a medication. And I saw this trend happening over the 30 years that I was in, 25 years I was in practice and over these years. And it's such a concern because you can't do that. It's What you've just said now is a reflection of in the home, instead of just immediately lashing back and trying to you know, discipline or tell them the right way, you're actually letting them experience the emotion. And then when they're ready to process it, then you can process and reconceptualize, but you're teaching them to embrace, which is so important. Now, if you don't do that and you keep teaching a child to suppress it down, or they keep having that negativity, you're wrong, you this, you whatever, you're now going to have a child who's, if they only get that pattern, a child who's going to now become a behavior problem at school, who's now so filled with frustrated emotions that they can't express because they're not linguistically able to because they're maybe eight or nine or and now they're at school maybe they hit fight with the child at school or they just naughty they cheat the teacher or they're not listening and their math scores drop down now suddenly they get in today's current environment that child's now labeled as having adhd or a neuropsychiatric brain disease and those things don't even actually exist they just names for things that have no scientific foundation that there's it's very very dangerous and then you don't look at the whole child that's exactly right yeah and i think one of the things you know that that i see a lot too is again, this over pathologizing, but we have, you know, we have so many families coming to us with kids who are so anxious and the parents will say, you know, basically the message we get is fix my kid. Like this is so hard for my kid. This is so hard for me. And they really are. They're so exhausted and they don't know what to do. And then they get all these labels and it may be that 
what's happening is our job as attachment figures is that as mammals, our job is for our young that when they are in distress, when they're having a massive stress response, when threat and danger arrives, that they have a biological drive to come to us as attachment figures and for us to help them survive and feel safe, connected, and protected. And what happens is a kid is having a big emotional experience and the parent actually, instead of saying, I've got you, we'll figure this out together and being like a safe haven where it's almost like I think about nervous system arousal and how the sympathetic nervous system, the dials turned all the way up, the volumes all the way up. And the parent's job as the attachment figure is to help them turn that volume down with our nonverbal communication. And we're just that safe haven where we say, I know it's so hard right now. I'm with you. Let's just take a breath together and then we'll figure out what to do. But what happens instead is the parent does a couple of other things. One is the parent criticizes the child or minimizes what's happening. Like, why are you freaking out about this? It's not that big of a deal. Or you should be grateful you even get to go to such a good school. And what happens is we, we criticize them and they have this experience like, gosh, when I show who I am and I share my big feelings with my parent, it doesn't feel good. That doesn't work very well for me. So I'm not going to do that anymore. And then they're alone in their struggle. So it even amplifies things and things get worse. And the other thing that happens is that parents, instead of turning that volume down, they actually amplify the child's states of distress. And they're like, if you're going to freak out about all of this, then we're never, this is going to be a horrible road ahead. And the parent just amplifies things instead of being that safe haven. So then it's toxic stress for both parent and child. Child. And that's just going to create a constant where that, that child doesn't feel that they've got a safe space in that environment. Doing the research, when we look inside the brain, I use QEEGs in the studies that we do. We see what is beautiful about the QEEG is that the brain is a responder. As, and I'm just bringing it back to the example. So when that child's in that state, your brain isn't producing. Your mind is causing the brain to respond. They're separate but inseparable. So your non-conscious level, which is the biggest part of you, is where this, I need to feel safe. I don't know how to express you my safe person I'm coming to you I'm throwing this tantrum but actually I'm saying help me understand and process so if we then come in they're already the unconscious minds are already sending the brain a message that there's a lot of and we'll see a lot of mess around the, the frequencies in the brain are going to be all over the place a lot of noise a red we call a red brain literally and then the, then you go to the parent and now that parent reacts it was all thinking oh I'm a discipline this child it's not you invalidate oh you like exactly the examples you gave that's going to increase high beta that's going to create such a flood in the brain that that child's going to go into such and that's going to reflect in the neuroendocrine system in the hormones everything physiologically through the body and then if you don't deal with it it imprints into the body and if you just okay we'll go to bed now the next day you up you kind of carry on and and then it keeps happening that's where this hovering anxiety builds we see but it can change because if you if you take that child and do what you described it's okay it's uh, i love you you're battling now i've whatever the, the words you said you know reflect back and direct we'll do this together you're battling you're irritated now you're frustrated it's unfair that your brother's staying you actually immediately calm down even though they may still be kicking the little legs and having a tantrum there's an immediate change in the in the brain because there's a new message to the mind you process differently to the brain so the point i want to make is that the technique that you've just described so beautifully has an immediate effect on changing the neuroplasticity of the brain and we can see that so you may not see the immediate behavior they may still kick the legs and cry and scream at you but you have changed the brain because on an unconscious level you've made a basic need so i just want to reinforce what you said so beautifully 
Yeah, and I think one one of the fears that I hear from parents when I talk about this idea, you know, in our in our book, The Power of Showing Up, we talk about the four S's that help cultivate. I wanted to attachment. ask that question. Okay, that's great. Thank yeah, you for bringing and, that up. You know. Really, you know, one of the best predictors we have for how well kids turn out on everything we measure them on is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. And Dan and I use the four S's to talk about how is it we cultivate secure attachment. And it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's about helping kids feel safe and seen, like that mind behind the behavior, soothed. And then over time, when they get enough experiences, like we just talked about, like, you're so disappointed, I'm right here with you. Or as we, as we, this is not a permissive parenting approach either. We're going to address behavior. We just want to do it in the times when they're receptive to learning that, you know, if my kid doesn't want to get out of the bathtub, as I'm lifting him out, I say, you're so mad, bath time is over. It's so frustrating to get out. You were really enjoying being in there. And if you need to cry for a little while or yell, I'm right here with you while you do that, right? So we're still walking through all of these things. But what happens, and the fear I get from parents is they say, yeah, but if I do that, if I help them calm down and I soothe them or I co-regulate or, or whatever it is, if I comfort them or turn that volume dial down, the world isn't going to do that. Doesn't that make them fragile? Like they need to learn to do that for themselves. And the research is really clear that kids move to independence when they feel safe enough to do it. And Every time we help our kid go from dysregulated back into a regulated state through our presence and our connection and soothing them, it's like that, that muscle, that brain gets practiced. You can see it in real time on the QEEG, but over time, those repeated experiences Changes wire the brain behavior. for what? So they have learned from all the practices of you calming them. It starts when they're babies and we're bouncing them and rocking them and rubbing their backs and we, we comfort them. And when they're teenagers, we say, oh, it's been such a hard day. I'm, I'm right here. What can I, how can I help? And it happens in our adult relationships too. But over time, that brain gets practiced so that that, that firing and wiring happens where it becomes, they have automaticity for how to do it for themselves, how to soothe themselves, because we've done that with them. Exactly. And talking about the automaticity, that's a very important thing. People think automatic is some kind of automatic that there's no thinking involved, but that automaticity is basically habit formation and it's very yeah. intelligent behavior patterns. So as you teach and model, you're building this into the brain so that your thinking becomes on your non-conscious level, which is the main level of thinking. It's 99% of us. That's where you're putting this, you're putting these intelligent lessons in place that they can draw that's on. Right. In. So you're not, so the discipline doesn't do that. The discipline actually blocks the learning taking place place. I mean, not just, as I said that wrong, the discipline in, in the moment, punishment or that attacking that in the moment of making invalidating or criticizing or, hey, it's not so bad and pull yourself together and calm down. You can't, in right. those first few moments, your brain isn't calm enough to process that correctly. So it'll be a distorted no. perception and it breaks down how it's built in the brain. But if you do what you That's said, right. embrace and process, then over time, when you do build, it becomes an intelligent memory. That's really great. That's really, so these are and four I S's. Did you say all four? Yeah, so so safe, seen, soothed, and then the fourth is secure. And basically that secure attachment comes, I don't mean like self-esteem, although we know that's an outcome of secure attachment, but it's really, and by the way, what I'm talking about is not the same as attachment parenting. This is 50 years of cross-cultural research under the psychology. But what we're really talking about is when kids have not perfect, predictable experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed, then what happens is that brain wires. It's gotten those reps. We, we har we've harnessed the neuroplasticity to create a mental model where the brain knows to expect, if I have a need, someone's going to show up for me. 
And then over time, they know, they expect their friends and their mates to help them feel safe and soothed. So they choose healthier relationships. But really what ends up happening is that they have, we have created automaticity in our child's brain or their, their default mode where they know then how to keep, how to show up for themselves, how to keep themselves safe and how to see and understand themselves, how to soothe themselves and how to provide secure connection in their other relationships. Beautiful. So, and it's happening and slowly it, each time, each, each, each incident time. And again, is building we can up. Mess up. We can, it doesn't have to be perfect. We, you know, it's really, what are the majority of their experiences when we mess up and we flip our lids and we yell at our kids or we talk to them in ways we would never allow anyone else to talk to them. Those are moments we, we, we just repair with them and we say, man, I really wish I had handled that differently. I'm so sorry. And we, we make a repair. But, but that, but, but that repair, if I may interrupt you there, that repair is very important because that repair is also modeling a behavior. So if you always write as a parent and you never wrong, that's also totally unrealistic for the child to you know, that's right. a totally wrong because then when they make do something wrong, they're going to be so hard on themselves. And that's the roots of perfectionism and all kinds of, you know, imposter syndrome. And I mean, there's just the whole, you know, all those things can happen. So it's, it's really great for us to be able to say, I had a bad day at work or this is happening in my life. I did react wrong. These are the reasons why. It's okay as an adult that I actually experienced. I'm still a human. I still have my emotions and I still go through stuff and it does this. And I'm so sorry that you, you know, that's also teaching them another whole, oh, okay. So when I'm an adult, if I have a bit of a breakdown, it's okay. There's a model in place of it's okay. I can embrace, I can process, I can reconceptualize and so on. So I just wanted to emphasize that point. Yeah. If we act perfect, then they think they have to be perfect. And we're modeling those, those rupture repair, rupture repair. We're modeling how to do that in the relationship. And they, it's remarkable. Actually, as we do this, we can even see them starting to practice how to do that with their siblings over time and with their friends. But something else happens that you just talked about there that's really remarkable beyond just the modeling of the behavior. And that is that when they have experiences in relationship with us us as their safest person, where the relationship doesn't feel good and it's messy and there's conflict, it actually widens their window of tolerance for having conflict in relationships. So if we were lovely to them every second, the world would be a pretty scary place. And the first time they had a friend get mad at them or yell at them, they would just think the world was broken. So we're giving them practice tolerating those uncomfortable feelings of messy relationships. Exactly. What we see in our brain research, myself and my team, is that when you have that discomfort, it actually allows the brain to go to another level of change. So, but it's your mind, all the time you've got to think it's not, the brain's just a responder, it's our mind. So our mind works. So we just can see that the brain just helps us to understand what's happening, you know, the, the imagery and so on. But it's that that there's a natural, when you do a little bit of a shakeup, it's going to settle down. You know, if you have sand in a glass and you shake it up and then it's all, and but then it, then it clears again. So when that child's in that initial state, it's like the sand in the glass you can't see. You've got to wait for it to settle down. But that shaking up in the brain also, because that, that once it's calmed down, your brain has wired in another experience, you know, and it's, yeah, so it's good. It's putting back to that balance. So it means possibility. Possibility, <laughs> possibility mindset. No, it's very, very, it's very freeing. This approach is, is very free. It is. It's, you don't yeah. have to be so hard on yourself. And I think that leads me into the second thing I wanted to say about that automaticity and that idea of, of multiple reps and, and changing what is automatic for us and, and what the research says that's so hopeful to us, which is that 
these experiences of how we handle things with our kids and even our own mental models for what we expect in relationships, our attachment patterns are based on many, many experiences. And so when we practice parenting in this new way, like hopefully you're hearing something, those of you who are listening, that you're like, oh gosh, I want to do that. That's the kind of parent I want to be, or I want to try that. Know that it may be hard at first, just like learning any new skill. And the more you do it, the more you'll have automaticity for really being present with your kids and helping them feel safe and comforting them. It gets easier over time. So we always, there's always hope that we can change how we handle our parenting, how we handle our own mind. And I mean, I wish we could talk for hours about the power of the mind and how we regulate our attention. I think just the study of attention alone is fascinating. And that we really do have tremendous, you know, and the brain is embodied. So when I talk, when I'm, my heart's beating really fast and I have a a knot in my stomach, that's my whole nervous system being, my brain is embodied and that I have tremendous power. And I love teaching this to kids and teenagers that we have tremendous power to use our minds to change our brains. And what we give attention to fires and wires. So if we're giving a lot of attention to bad behavior, we're actually reinforcing it. Much better to really focus and give a lot more attention on the feelings and the desires and the fears and all of those things so they can be worked through. And then they get practice doing that. There are so many supplements out there that it can be very overwhelming and scary. I did my own research since that's what I do best and that's when I discovered Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food or in their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can actually do more harm to your body than good. I've been using Ritual for a while now and I really love how they make me feel inside and out. Ritual also makes everything so easy and convenient. A subscription is easy to start and it's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. When I was still practicing, I'd have very young patients, very old patients, and also I used to do a lot of training. We would teach kids as young as three to understand how your mind changes your brain. And you can using imagery and whatever, and they grab that quickly. And if you they track that it. kind of, they do. So it's yeah. just to know that you're not just to recognize that biological response, how you feel in your body is telling you something in your mind and you can, you can the two that's can work right. together and you can use your mind to change your brain. You know, that's, that's a, right. That's the whole message of what I'm trying to teach with my work. So when that's yeah. why I like what you do, why we resonate because you're teaching the same message and it's there's a lot of messages out there that are saying that you know we just biological machines who biological right. automatums the biomedical model which dominates unfortunately right. has been dominating for the last 30 to 50 years and yeah. that kind of I think you started right in the beginning saying that parents are so focused on the behaviors and the symptoms that they're forgetting about the why now this yeah. whole almost 45 minute conversation you've focused and emphasized the why not just yeah. the behavior you know and that's so vital so that's become a big missing element in parenting 
that's sort of more spiritual, the bigger picture, the individual, the case study. That's one of the things I do in my research as well is to look, if you can't look at just the numbers, you've got to look at the individual case study. Everyone's yeah. so unique. And you're bringing that back into the parenting because there's a lot of parenting yeah. stuff out there that's saying, hey, if these symptoms happen, get them to the doctor, right. get them to the psychiatrist, right. get them the label, get them on. The, and if you're not doing that, there's so much guilt attached to yeah. the parent. So the first line of, of defense, if a child's behaving in in some way, is you've got to get them labeled and medicated. I mean, that's the last resort, if ever a resort. And yes. if it's, you know, it's, it's, you've got to, you cannot rule, not rule out, you've got to deal with the biological potential, but you've yeah. got to look at that whole child. I think one of the things I like to say, and we're now we're playing with the word mind here, but I, I really think, and the reason we wrote No Drama Discipline is because I think we have completely lost our minds. In how I totally we, agree with you. Love in that. lots of ways, but in particularly for this topic, is we've lost our minds in terms of how we see, understand, and respond to kids' behaviors. We have lost our minds. I truly believe the. I love the, what you just said. <laughs> we've got to have a redo, and that's I really actually no drama discipline for one of our our, our titles. We almost used and that I've used in my some of my talks is the idea of rethinking discipline because. I truly believe, based on everything I know about how the brain and the mind and relationships work, that most of the time, kids are doing the best they can. I think that's true. I really that's believe- That's a great premise to start from there. Most of the time, kids are doing what they- They, they the do their best. They can. The best and they think, can. You know, one of the ways Dr. Ross Green talks about it is, and lots of people, versions of this, including myself, say something along the lines of, kids do well when they can. And when they're not doing well, we begin with curiosity and we say, what is really going on? And I could tell you so many stories. I'll just tell you one in particular. You know, so much of the time, if you really believe that, the kids, they want to please us and they want their teachers to like them and they want their friends to like them. So when you have a kid, say in a classroom, that's having... that keeps getting punished. I mean, they keep getting punished over and over and over for the same kinds of behaviors. I had a teacher, No Drama Discipline was, had just come out and I was speaking in a, a large auditorium at a, for a large school district actually in the Dallas area. And one of the, I had been teaching about the nervous system and how we're either in a reactive state or we're in a receptive state. And the whole point and purpose of discipline is to create children who are self-disciplined. And that requires a lot of practice, a lot of development unfolding, and a lot of teaching and skill building. So when I say I'm a disciplinarian, I don't mean a punisher. I mean a teacher and a skill builder. Oh, I and love the, that. And, Just say and that the, again. Just say yes, that again. That's a yes. great statement. <laughs> that, that discipline is all about teaching. So as a disciplinarian, my job is not to punish. My job is to teach and to build skills so that my child can do better the next time. If we just throw a punishment at a kid, then how are they supposed to change their behavior the next time? No. And so, and really, I mean, I maybe we can have a whole other talk just about discipline because we could just go way into this in really, you know, deep ways. But this teacher said to me, she said, now, so you're telling me like when kids are in the red zone, right, their nervous system is dialed way up and they're in a fight, flight, freeze, acting out, you know, aggressive, verbally, bodily, all these kinds of things, or they're in the blue zone where they're shut down and collapsed and withdrawn too much, you know, not enough sympathetic, too much parasympathetic, that they really can't learn in those states. So she's, you know, so this teacher said, I'm kind of wondering about what I do in the classroom. 
for behavior management. And so she t- begins to tell me that she, and like this is very common in classrooms for classroom management, is to have kids' names on clothespins. And she said, funny enough, I have like the green, and if they get a warning, they get moved to the yellow. And if they get another warning, they get moved to the red. And if they get moved to the red, they get a punishment. They lose recess or they get a note home. And by the way, no child should ever lose recess ever. The ones who get recess taken away are the ones who need to move their bodies more. Exactly. It's the worst thing. Thank you for saying that. Worst worst thing. thing. So this teacher said, so she said, you know, I'm just not sure if what I'm doing is right. Like if kids you know, are, are doing their best most of the time. Like, I don't, now I'm just not sure what to do with this. And so I said, well, let me ask you a question. Is it typically the same kid or two doing the same kinds of bad behaviors over and over again? And the rest of the kids pretty much, you may have to give them a warning a time or two, but they regulate themselves. And she said, she said, yes. She said, in fact, one boy, I moved his clothespin so much his name rubbed off and, but we all knew that was his clothespin. And I said, okay, so let me just, let's get clear about this for a second. Every time, every day, multiple times a day, he's getting consequences from you. He's getting in trouble with his parents. And what are his behaviors like? And so she starts describing ADHD, typical kinds of behaviors, intrusive in other people's body space, having a hard time sitting still and attending to what's going on, leaning over on kids, you know, invading their spaces. And I said, so what kind of feedback is he getting from his peers? And so she said that his classmates, he drives them crazy. He doesn't even get invited to the birthday parties. So he's getting social consequences, which we know kids are dying to be accepted by their peers. So if they're doing these behaviors over and over and they're getting consequences from their peers but still doing the same behaviors, I said, let me ask you something. Would you ever move the clothespin or give a punishment to a kid with dyslexia because they weren't reading along at the same pace as the rest of the class? And she said, no, I would never do that. And I said, why? She said, because she can't help it or he can't help it. And I said, why would it be any different for a kid who has social, emotional, behavioral challenges We can't punish kids for things they can't help. You know, we would never spank a one-year-old for not, for going to the bathroom in their diaper because they're not developmentally there yet, right? So, or we would hope that that would not happen. But so anyway, this is just a huge shift to say, okay, this kid is telling you, I don't have skills in regulating my body in space in real time. He's behaviors communicating to us the very skills they need to learn. And so our job as disciplinarians is to help them build those skills. And I think we do so much harm in homes, in mental health offices, and in schools where we punish kids for things they don't know how to do differently. And then they're filled with even more anxiety. And so like I, this little preschooler I consulted in his case, he was a really anxious little guy. And he would get so upset about things and he would yell at his teacher. And so he'd get sent to the office and, and one day he hit his teacher, which obviously is not okay. But the teacher was like, I've had it. And so when we looked at this, what we ended up looking at it was that this kid, when he had big feelings that he couldn't help, he knew, oh no, here come the big feelings. And when they happen... I'm going to get in trouble. So that makes him have even more anxiety and behavioral problems versus if he, if someone connected with him and supported him and taught him different ways and different strategies worked with him, then he could say, oh gosh, I have these big feelings I can't help, but someone's going to help me. We actually start seeing the behavior problems get less over time. And here's one other thing I just have to say, and that is we are so focused on behavior and not at all focused on what we should be focused on, which is regulation. 
when the child is regulated, the behaviors typically take care of themselves. The reason kids often have really big bad behaviors is because they're dysregulated. And just a very quick example, a colleague of mine was working with this kid who had a trauma history and the kid would refuse to stay in his bed at night. And he was probably eight or nine. And the parents understandably were like, we're so sick of being woken up. We just want him to stay in his bed. So they were so focused on extinguishing this behavior and not at all thinking about this regulation piece. They worked with a behaviorist who was basic extinction model, like punishment if you get out of bed and rewards if you stay in bed. So after two weeks, this was successful. He was no longer getting up and getting out of bed. So the parents were like, oh, thank God, why didn't we do this earlier? But then in the two weeks that followed, he started decompensating. More behavior problems, massive fighting at school, massive oppositionality at home. And they came to discover that while he was compliant and his behavior was the right thing to do, he was actually staying awake at least half the night in toxic stress and fear, feeling afraid, but knowing he couldn't go into his parents' room. Had he been regulated and felt safe enough, he probably would have stayed in his own room. But because we were focused on the behavior, he was totally dysregulated, even though he was compliant. So compliance is not success. Regulation is success. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm, I'm sitting here looking calm, but inside I'm like this bubbling thing of, thank goodness there are other people out there that are giving this excellent message. Thank you for what you've just said. Part of what I used to do was work in schools. I've trained thousands of teachers. I've worked in, I had a parallel to my private practice. I would work in schools and train. And I don't know how many times I have had this com similar conversation within situations where we would work in those teams and that kind of thing. And it's like this whole move to try and, ex you said it beautifully, extinguish instead of self-regulate. I think one of the things that my kids and people that follow my work, my books, everything, I self-regulate is like every second sentence, every second word is self-regulation, self-regulation. So it's all over my apps, all over my books, all over my conversations. You don't extinguish anything. It's part of you, but you self-regulate it. So thank you for highlighting that. It was a brilliant example. And I wish we had hours more, but we can make hours more because I would love to have you back because this has been so powerful, beautiful discussion, full of practical advice. And we haven't got through, I think we got through like three of the questions I had. So I would love to invite you back again to take this further and definitely dive deeper. And I want to just thank you for your wisdom and your enthusiasm and your passion for, and for the difference that you're making in children's lives. It's really so vital. Honestly, just recently, there's a conversation going through my head with a psychiatrist where I actually wanted to, it was a, they didn't see my face. It was an audio podcast, but we actually never even put the podcast out there because they spoke about discipline and it was all about punish, extinguish. I thought, this is not going out there. I didn't even release the podcast because of that, you know, so thank you for what you're saying. And I know it's up so many people and where can people get hold of you they can find me at tinabryson.com and that's b-r-y-s-o-n and lots of resources on there and you know and i have a, a new book coming out in september of 2020 that's a science-informed practical guidebook for parent new parents called the bottom line for baby so it takes 65 of the topics that we get the most competing information on, like sleep training and co-sleeping and all those kinds of things. And it really gives a very quick alphabetical, you flip to sleep training S and it says, here are the main arguments for and against, but here's what the science says. And here's the bottom line. And then I add in some of my own thoughts, but I'm excited about that as well. 
But I, I want to say one, one is I'm so honored to get to connect with you. I rarely feel so stimulated from a mind. I want to learn more about you and your work, and I hope we can have more conversations. I hope so too. I'd love to work together. We need to collaborate. That we need to do some so fun. research and decide how we're going to oh, help I parents get set free that. and help our next generation. I am so I concerned as you are, yeah, definitely with how this next generation are going through into teenagerhood and adult was such yes. with such severe anxiety. I wonder if you were teen of that study. I'm sure you are that one study where they took all those, they did a huge study of, of teenagers cross-culturally and different countries. And they asked them, what is the one thing you want from your parents? And you know, the answer was to be listened to, you know, and it just like underscores everything that you said. But yet there's conflicting messages out there. And there's a lot of, even though there are people are, people get what you're saying. They get what I'm saying. But are they really applying? Because we live in such an automated world, such a mechanistic world where it's all behavior driven, all symptom driven. And we've got to stop that. It's it's actually destroying the next generation. And it shortens lifespans. You know, it's shortening lifespans and everything. There's all the recent population studies. Our 25-year-olds to 64-year-olds are dropping down like this and it, you know we look back yeah so there's a lot we can it's talk about for a rev- it is time, and it's for, time a for a revolution in terms of how we work with kids and and help them understand their own minds and that they that and to understand that we are not victims to our internal chaos and our circumstances but we have these powerful minds and it's time for a revolution for us to stop defining success as perfect behavior or by achievement oh, that is not what success you. is about so exactly that's a whole we've we've got to we've got about 500 and about you know, 500 more podcasts but you know, <laughs> know. well and I'll, I'll i'll give this as my final thought and that is that you know we spend so much time thinking about our kids and what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing and what we should be doing and not doing and we spend a lot of time on that and here's sort of the bottom line of all of my work and that is that what your kid needs most from you is you. Flawed, imperfect, messy, but present you. That's what our kids need most from us. And what that means is that we have to remember that we matter too. I want to say to you parents, you matter too. And really taking care of yourself and making sure that you have people who help you feel safe, seen, and soothed, and secure, and who show up for you, and to value showing up for yourself. Your kids need you to be present, and you cannot do that unless you have the capacity to do it. So you matter too, and that, that's really important. But just put everything else aside. What your kid needs most from you is that idea that you just mentioned is for you to just show up for them. And it doesn't have to be perfect, but just no, and it doesn't have to be quant- be quantity, there. it's quality, it's not quantity that they want, exactly right, it's quality no, that they're wanting, that's right. and that frees so many parents. This has been a very freeing yeah. discussion, Tina. Thank I you so, so much. We'll put all the links <laughs> in the show notes, and we'll certainly be talking about doing something again very soon. I'd love to do an Instagram live with you, reading a lot of Instagram lives, and we, we can do, but we'll be in contact with you. But that was fantastic. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. 
So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.